as you're well aware, we're in the midst of a severe recession. You can't miss this from these news. It's likely that by at least some measures, uh, this recession will turn out to be more severe uh, than any other we've seen in the last 50 years. Um, this recession began at the beginning of last year, um, in uh, early 2008, and the rate of decline became particularly acute uh, last fall. Now, all economic contractions come to an end, and the growth process ultimately resumes. So where are we in this process, you might ask? So I'll discuss this as we go along, but the gist of my answer is that overall economic activity is still contracting, but the pace at which it's contracting is, is, is diminishing uh, in recent months. And at some point later this year, I expect, and a lot of other people expect, economic activity overall to bottom out and for us to begin growing again as an economy um, by the end of the year. Before getting to the overall outlook, um, I want to provide a little background on some notable developments uh, that preceded this recession. And all, as always, I have to caution you, I'm an independent um, official of the Federal Bank of Richmond, so the views I express uh, are my own and don't necessarily comport with the views of other Federal Reserve officials. We, we bring our independent views to bear on policy when they're asked to deliberate. So the most spectacular event by far leading up to this recession uh, was undoubtedly the big boom and bust cycle in housing activity, um, investment in home construction. Residential investment rose from, I'm going to throw some statistics at you here, 4.1% of GDP to six, in 1995 to 6.2% of GDP in 2005. What does that mean? Well, GDP, gross domestic product, is our best overall measure of the, the total size of the U.S. economy. And so the share devoted to residential investment, that's, that's the fraction of, of, of resources in our economy, labor time, capital, materials, the fraction of our economy that's devoted to building homes. It went from 4.1% to 6.2% in 10 years. A huge increase, a 50% increase in the fraction of our economy devoted to housing. Now, the, the popular view about this whole expansion is that it was really excessive, that it was, um, uh, that it was, was overdone, it went too far. There's a German truth in that. But uh, it's important not to overlook, I think, that a large part of the increase really was rested on some solid economic fundamentals. There was strong income and employment growth over this period from 1995 to 2005. And in addition, interest rates were relatively low over that period. There were some conditions that were favorable to housing and that warranted increased investment in housing. Now, there's another important supporting factor. Um, I'll call it one factor, but it's really a multifaceted array of things. There was a strong public policy uh, commitment to boosting housing activity and home ownership over this period. And uh, this manifested itself in initiatives that range from uh, the favorable tax treatment that we all, most of us, enjoy on um, home mortgage interest um, to the implicit subsidies that are allowed to flow through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the big housing-related uh, government-sponsored enterprises. In addition to that, over this time period, 95 to 2005, there were genuine 
innovation in mortgage lending and in what's called securitization, the process of packaging mortgages and selling tools of mortgages to investors. Innovations that were genuinely beneficial um, to both borrowers and lenders and to our, our society as a whole. Now, in retrospect, we can see that the beneficial innovation was accompanied by some excessive things, some lax underwriting standards, um, some overly complex securitization products, and you know, some securities and financial products that were, were just too opaque. Um, it was also accompanied for a time by expectations by a lot of people in the market that home price appreciation would just keep going that it wouldn't come to an end. Particularly true in the period from, say, 2003 through the end of 2005. So in essence, we had a housing boom that was driven by some sound economic fundamentals, but was intensified by assumptions made by mortgage market participants, both borrowers and lenders, and the investors that were involved. Assumptions that were, in hindsight, too optimistic just too optimistic. Now, some commentators, some people who've written about all this, and a lot of people have spilled a lot of ink about this whole um, episode, some have claimed that this whole turmoil, and this whole boom and bust cycle, um, is uh, an, an illustration of some fundamental flaws in our financial markets and our financial institutions. Now, I think it's important to kind of wait a second before we jump to a conclusion like that. I think we need to evaluate the extent to which the risk-taking effects that financial institutions had were distorted by actual or perceived government backstop, by uh, perceived government financial safety net undergirding part of the financial system. Um, for example, I mentioned Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, who were seen as too big to fail. They were seen as institutions that Congress wouldn't let fail. And that meant they could borrow money at cheaper rates than you or I or, or another similarly situated firm because the, the lenders to them, the creditors, didn't thought the government would come in and step in if they got in trouble. So they, they didn't charge a risk premium for lending to them. Similarly, some very large banking organizations were, uh, I think, viewed by market participants as too big to fail, as likely to get assistance from the government in the event that they got into trouble, and we've actually seen that assistance forthcoming. And I think that influenced uh, their behavior and led them to take on more risk than they otherwise would have taken on. And I think that that's what led to so much risk-taking in the subprime mortgage market. So it strikes me it's quite plausible that these major shortcomings of our system of housing finance are attributable mostly, primarily, I'd say, to the distorted behavior of institutions refusing to be And that's the big problem we need to address in the financial system. So, back to the story of the precursors to this recession. By the middle of this decade, 2005 or so, the evidence began to to emerge, this boom had gone on too far. This housing boom had gone on too far. For example, the number of vacant homes began to rise, and the homes that aren't occupied by anybody. By the end of 2005, the homeowner vacancy rate was 2%, which at that time was the highest value that had ever been seen in several decades in that vacancy rate. Might not sound like much, 
like much, but it's a lot. Okay. At the same time, many measures of housing activity recorded their peak values for the place. So construction, home prices, and the like. Residential investment, the amount of resources we devote to building new homes, has fallen sharply. Remember I said it, it got to two, it got to 6.2% of GDP in 2005. Uh, well, now it's 2.7%, even lower than it used to be. A huge decline in resources devoted to housing construction. And it's not clear whether we've hit a bottom yet. There's some signs, I'll, I'll talk about those in a minute, but it's not clear we've hit a bottom yet. Despite that decrease in construction activity, home vacancies have continued to rise. Now, homeowner vacancy rate has been above 2.5% for the last two and a half years. So clearly, we have a substantial overhang of houses uh, that are really surplus, surplus housing inventory um, that uh, remains right now. The boom in, in construction of homes was accompanied by uh, increasingly large price increases as the decade went on. One measure of home prices increased by 192% from 2005, uh, I'm sorry, from 1995 to 2006, more almost doubling in 10 years, tremendous increase. But similarly, on the on the downside, the, the bust has led to falling prices for homes. The same index has fallen 20% uh, since 2006 for the last couple of years. Falling home prices have had a lot of effects. They've reduced home equity values. Um, so they've cut into household wealth, so a lot of consumers aren't as wealthy as they used to be because they don't have as much money in their homes. Falling home prices have also led to rising delinquency and default and substantial reductions in the value of the mortgage-backed securities that are based on repayments of mortgage obligations. And these are securities that are on the books in many financial institutions and, and investors' portfolios. So future economic historians are going are to have a field day on this. They're, they're going to work really hard. It's going it's to be a lot of research on this episode. They're likely to identify several other factors that um, contributed to the onset and intensity of the recession, besides the housing market. But I don't, I don't think that they're going to overturn this notion, this, this assessment, that it was really housing that drove this recession. There was a relatively rapid decline in residential investment again in early 2006. I've shown you some of those numbers, shared some of those numbers with you. Manufacturing production began to fall in mid-2007, and that was driven by a pronounced weakness in building materials, for example, and also automobile, uh, spending on automobiles started sagging about that time. That weakness in the supply side of the economy spilled over to spending, and total spending began declining in the final quarter of 2007, so this is over a year ago. Uh, and that was, that fourth quarter of 2007, that was the official peak of our business cycle, and we've been, the economy's been declining since the fourth quarter of 2007. After spending started to decline, then total employment started to decline as well. And we've lost nearly 3 million, in fact, over 3 million jobs now. Um, and in the first quarter of 2009, we lost an additional 2 million jobs. I could continue, but these are fairly dismal statistics. I don't like reciting them. They should be enough, I think, to convey the severity of this recession, which, as I said, is likely to turn out to be the most severe since, um, at least in the last 60 years. So that's the background. Now for the outlook. 
Most prominent forecasters who spend their lives doing this, and we have some in our banks and some in the Federal Reserve System, expect the recession to end later this year. And I think that's a reasonable view. I'm going to outline the reasons I think that's, that's a reasonable view. I'll begin by highlighting two stabilizing forces that are often underestimated. One is the resilience of the American consumer, and the other is the stimulative power of monetary policy. So with respect to consumers, the key determinant of any family's spending plan are their, their, their current income and wealth and their view on the income that they're likely to be receiving in the months and years ahead. Those two things combine to really govern whether those families' spending plans are. Just how they, how they adjust their spending plans between different things that they want to buy is up to them. But the, the sort of overall magnitude of their spending is pretty much determined by their current wealth current income and what they expect for the future. Now, it is true that, that consumer wealth has taken a severe beating in this recession. Uh, you know that how I mentioned before that home equity is down. Uh, housing prices have declined and then these things so the equity people have in their homes. And of course, stock market prices have fallen as well. That's eaten into people's uh, equity portfolios. Uh, but it's also true that for most households, the the value of their future labor income, in, uh, in technical terms, the present value of the future, the present equivalent value of the future labor income, is much larger than their tangible and financial assets. Let me say that again. The value of their expected future income is, for most people, much bigger than their current assets, both tangible wealth and financial wealth. And as a result, um, uh, consumers' views about their future income often are what driving consumption rather than current wealth and current income. So consumers typically cut back spending in a recession as their wealth declines and their, and their income prospects decline. Some of them lose their jobs, some of them don't lose their jobs, but fear they may lose their jobs, or fear that if they lose their jobs, that it won't be as easy to find a new job um, in a weakened labor market. But at some point in, in recession, consumers look ahead and they become more confident that uh, their post-recession employment and income prospects are still there. That after the recovery begins, they're still going to have a job and they're going to have income on the other side. So at some point, consumers start looking through to the other side. And at that point, they start spending more vigorously than you would expect by just looking at the current wealth and current income. So that's the dynamic that governs consumer spending. And this time, at this time is no different, and I think we're beginning to see signs of that kind of resilience in consumer spending. So real disposable income. Uh, this is um, after-tax income that people have from all sources, adjusted for inflation, has actually increased at a 4.5% annual rate in the last two quarters. A lot of this is because energy prices have come down, and that cuts oil and energy, fuel oil, um, heating oil prices. That puts more money into people's pockets. Um, so from that point of view, firmer spending recently shouldn't be too much of a surprise. And it turns out in the first quarter, January, February, and March, we've seen um, consumer spending increase at a fairly solid 2.2% annual rate in real terms. Um, and so we've, we've seen this sort of stabilization in, in consumer spending. 
Now, consumer spending accounts for over two-thirds of the economy, about 70% of the economy. So that resilience is a major factor that's going to be supporting the macroeconomic forecast with most forecasts. I'm no exception to that. Turning to monetary policy, the Federal Reserve has reacted very promptly and very decisively in the current episode. We lowered our target interest rate. This is the policy tool we use usually. Um, it's called the federal funds rate. We lowered that from five and a quarter percent at the beginning of this whole episode, September 2007, to its current level, where what we have now is a range. Rather than a, a single target, we have a range. Uh, we're targeting the funds rate to be between zero and a quarter percent. So essentially a, a zero percent federal funds rate. And the short-term interest rate, uh, we moved it down to that range in December 2008. This reduction in interest rates, you know, that kind of magnitude is typical of an economic downturn, uh, although it isn't often that we get rates down all the way to zero. But that reduction in interest rate makes outlays, makes spending money today more attractive relative to spending money tomorrow. And you, you know, consumers looking at the whole pie, you know, they could spend today or save for tomorrow. Well, the rate of return on savings isn't that good. And if you look at businesses, they're looking at borrowing money to do a project, and the rate of, bar rate of borrowing costs is all things, all other things constant, and they haven't quite been constant here. But, you know, other things sell constant, lower interest rates are going to mean more business as well. So, on both those accounts, it makes spending money today more attractive relative to spending money tomorrow. And that provides an impetus to growth in the near term. But that's not all the Federal Reserve's done. In the last eight months, we've more than doubled the amount of Federal Reserve money we've put in the system. That is, currency, the hand-to-hand -hand currency, that hasn't gone up by much. But there's a kind of money that banks have. Bank, uh, banks, uh, like Virginia National Bank, have balances uh, in an account with the Federal Reserve. So it's like we have a checking account that banks use. And that kind of money has gone up from $8 billion to $800 billion. So a huge increase in bank reserves. Um, currency, paper currency, is still around eight or nine hundred billion. So the total amount of Federal Reserve money is doubled from around eight hundred billion to around one point seven trillion. Uh, a huge increase in um, uh, monetary stimulus. It's inevitable that that's going to boost spending in the months ahead. It's provided a little bit of impetus now, um, but as we move forward, um, that's bound to provide uh, further impetus. So let me let me talk about some other indicators in the housing market uh, that provide some reason to believe that the recession is going to is going to end this year. I point to single-family housing stocks. These hit low in January um, and were basically flat in February and March. Uh, so it, it looks like some signs of stability now. New and existing home sales um, each hit a low point in January, and also both of those are now somewhat higher. One measure of existing home prices has increased in seasonally adjusted terms in both January and February. And we've seen wi widespread reports. Uh, they're not universal, but there have been anecdotal reports of increased uh, buyer traffic, increased number of people sort of shopping for homes. Um, and um, also reports of some firming prices in some local markets. This is universal, as I said, but we have had scattered reports on that one. Taking this all together, these observations suggest that 
housing activity might not be declining rapidly the way it has been for the last couple of years. I think we also have some evidence that the worst of the decline in manufacturing activity Now, the usual sequence of events is that in a recession, demand falters, unwanted inventory is built up, uh, inventory pile up in stores that aren't being bought the way uh, manufacturers expected them to. And then the manufacturers make large production cuts in order to drive their inventories lower, um, lower even than the, the demand going forward, because they need to work off the, the, the overhang of inventory. And that's where we are now. Inventory reduction subtracted a bunch from economic growth um, last quarter, 2.8%, huge subtraction. It's a reduction in production. If, if, if companies weren't working off inventory, GDP growth would have been higher by that amount, or a smaller negative number by that amount. That inventory runoff has made inventories pretty low, and that sets the stage for the next phase of this recession, uh, where any increase in final demand has to get translated into production, because they can't just need it out of inventory. They've got to increase production when demand picks up. And that's what forecasters see for, for later this year. As spending flattens out and stops declining, Production will have to keep pace with spending going forward uh, because inventories are small. We have a smidgen of positive evidence of that now because new orders for, and this is going to be some jargon here, non-defense capital goods excluding aircraft, bear with me, um, increased in February and March. I'll explain this in a second. I, it sounds pretty esoteric, but it's, it's a really widely followed indicator, leading indicator of capital spending by firms. And it's uh, capital goods, so it's the goods that um, are used to make other goods. So these are things like machines, equipment, cars, trucks, like Non-defense, because uh, defense capital goods spending kind of marches to its own drummer. Um, so we'll let that set that aside. Um, and then aircraft orders are huge and lumpy, and they, uh, people order aircraft like five years in advance. So we don't really care about aircraft orders. So we take both of those out and you get non-defense capital goods, including aircraft. Drop that in your next in a cocktail party, really impress your friends. And um, it's, um, it's, it's actually you know, increased in February and March uh, after some sharp declines, but maybe some stabilization in new orders there that maybe, maybe business investment spending on equipment is, is, is bottoming out. In addition, we have, we have survey data on manufacturing. We have actual economic statistics of what they've sold and shipped. But that's a month or two old. But we have survey evidence that's much more current, where we ask them, it's going up, going down. What do you think? And those surveys we can do really fast. And there's a bunch of different ones out there. There's a na there's some national ones. There's a bunch of regional ones. I'm going to highlight our own, this district survey, uh, which has historically done a pretty good job of predicting the national uh, trends in, in Manufacturing and our index went from negative 56 in February to negative three in April. Now, negative, what's the deal with negative and positive? Well, positive for this index means that more survey respondents are reporting increasing shipments than decreasing shipments. And negative means more decreasing than in increasing. So negative 50 is a ton. These are in percentage terms, and so negative three is like pretty close to zero. So this is gone. This reading has gone from tremendously negative to neutral, and that suggests them bottoming out. And then similar things for the new orders version of that index went from minus 52 to minus two. And other surveys are giving similar signals that the breadth of decline in manufacturing is 
shrinking, and that fewer firms are seeing shrinking demand, and shrinking shipments, and shrinking orders. Um, and that, that gives us a little hope that, that maybe the worst of the manufacturing declines might be behind us. Um, to be fair and balanced, I've gone through some, run through some positive news, and I have to add that some spending in a few other categories is still contracting fairly sharply. And I'll mention construction, and here I, I have some nuances to provide here. Non-residential construction, so you know, residential construction, that's been falling pretty dramatically for three years now. But non-residential construction, things like offices, um, retail, outlets, uh, strip malls, hospitals, schools, um, uh, factories, that, that kind of thing. That actually increased in the, last, in the middle of last year, but then it began declining. And it's been declining for several months. And most forecasters expect uh, further declines in the months ahead. Having said that, uh, the gentleman's press over there, well aware, uh, as none of you are, that um, we got a new report on construction today, and it showed that non-residential construction is rising. Um, so that wouldn't look like it conflicts with the story uh, that I said. I haven't had time to go over the numbers in detail. I'll talk to my economists about it. Um, but um, I think the outlook for non-residential construction is still pretty adverse, um, and I expect I expect declines to resume. Unless I'm surprised, I expect continued weakness in that. I expect that to be a sector that bottoms out later than the rest of the economy, perhaps into next year. Um, the better than expected report today is certainly welcome news, and uh, if it is a hard thing or is more strength there than I thought, that would, that would be good for, for, for prospects going forward. And I'll, I'll mention export demand. Um, foreign economies weakened later than ours did last year, but when they did weaken, we had a, a tremendously sharp, dramatic drop in export, uh, demand for our exports um, in the fourth quarter of last year. And so that's going to be a uh, dampening effect on growth. It's going to be a category spending that might not perk up any time soon because our economy is likely to recover a little bit sooner than our major trading partners. The worst other category to mention, though, is the job market. And I'm sure you've read about this. We're losing jobs rapidly right now. Uh, the unemployment rate has gone up from 4.4% to 8.5% in just two years. And on top of that, the growth in average earnings, uh, the typical worker, has slowed in the last uh, couple of months. Now, there, uh, I have to mention the fiscal stimulus program. Um, it's aimed at part in boosting economic growth. But I think a lot of popular accounts have overstated um, its likely effects um, on the economy. Keep in mind that today's stimulus is going to be paid for at some point in the future, and that the prospect, just the, the prospect of future taxes, can have a dampening effect on growth and restrain activity now. Moreover, some spending, some of that stimulus spending, is going to divert workers and firms from things they otherwise would have been. And so that's, that's kind of a wash for the economy as a whole. Instead of drawing in unemployed resources, it's going to divert resources from the private sector to the public sector. My, my overall sense, economists differ on this, it's sort of hard to measure, hard to predict, but my overall sense is that um, the overall contour of the recovery that I've described be pretty much the same with or without the fiscal stimulus. So I'm, I'm not expecting um, great salvation from this stimulus, even though it is likely to have some effect in the market. So all in all, then, uh, just to sum up about the economy, um, the economic, economic activity is still contracting overall. 
Some spending components appear to be bottoming out. Uh, and the overall rate of contraction, because of that, is slowing. If the emerging stability in housing and consumer spending persists, as I expect it to, I think some segments of business investment spending should bottom out by the end of the year, and I think economic growth should turn positive. I think the labor market is going to continue to weaken, however. I think overall spending is going to bottom out before the labor market bottoms out, and before the unemployment rate will be into next year. So a discussion of the economic outlook would not be complete without a discussion of the outlook for inflation. Uh, last year, I was concerned that inflation was too high. For the 12 months that ended in July of last year, July of 2008, the price index for personal consumption expenditures, that's our favorite index, rose 4.5%. Inflation, the best way we can measure it, 4.5% through the middle of last year. With the collapse of oil prices since last summer, um, inflation has receded, and for the last 12 months, prices have risen only six-tenths of a percent. So last year, it's been, since the middle of last year, it's been much better inflation performance, for sure. Now, given the volatility in energy prices, which is what, which is what drove that swing up to 4.5 and down to 0.6, um, it's useful to look at what we call core inflation. That's inflation where you strip out the volatile food and energy prices. The food has been a volatile factor, too, recently. So that measure, stripping out food and energy, the core inflation index, uh, increased at 1.8% over the last 12 months. And that's down from a 12-month figure of 2.4%. So 2.4 down to 1.8% right now for core inflation. Now, looking ahead, um, most economic forecasters on inflation this year have divided themselves into several camps. Uh, there's one camp that believes that high unemployment is necessarily going to lead to continually falling inflation for several years. And they're concerned about the risk of outright deflation. I personally don't think that the risk of deflation is large. I think that risk is overstated. For the first three months of this year, inflation has averaged two and a quarter percent, both the core price indexes and the overall index that includes food and energy. I think that's good index, good indicator that the risk of deflation, outright straight declines in, in prices has, has passed this by. Another camp places significant weight on the public's expectations. And as near as we can figure, consumer expectations about inflation and firms' expectations about inflation are well anchored around 2%. And, and if they think inflation is going to be 2%, then inflation sort of exhibits a gravitational pull toward the 2%. Now, finally, there's a third camp. Kemp that sees the rapid growth that I described before in the Fed's monetary liability, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. And this camp remembers the historical association that we've seen many times in the past between rapid money growth and subsequent inflation. And people in this camp wonder whether inflation is going to accelerate when the economy begins to recover. You might ask, where do I stand? What camp am I in? Well, I gravitate to the second uh, The one that views stable expectations and, and monetary policy, those are expectations about how we get come up, monetary policy, is likely to anchor inflation in the near term. But I think members of the third camp have identified some inflation risks that are quite legitimate. And, and those risks, that risk has me quite worried. And it's something that I think that we need to pay close attention to. 
The challenge for us on the Federal Open Market Committee will be to shrink our balance sheet and tighten monetary policy soon enough when the recovery emerges so that we can prevent rising inflation. And the danger that this third camp sees, and I think this is a, a, a risk with that's, that's not insignificant, is that we will not shrink our balance sheet and tighten policy soon enough when the recovery emerges to be, prevent rising inflation. Choosing the right time to withdraw that stimulus is going to be a challenge, um, a serious, serious challenge. I think it'll be, in my mind, the important thing is to avoid the risk of waiting too long and moving too slowly.